Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast that came up with at least three uses for peanuts. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. What what three, what are those uses? Uh, peanut butter, candy bars, and ammunition, obviously. like this where i'm glad that we record remotely because you would definitely be throwing peanuts at me right now otherwise i would love a payday right now or like chocolate covered peanuts I could go for a payday yeah man pay- chocolate covered almonds eh, i'm not a big almond person really oh, i love a good almond i like uh like marzipan and almond in things but just like a hershey bar with almonds doesn't do it for me oh yeah i don't like hershey i don't like almonds in like chocolate bars because it's got to be like i like a good chocolate covered almond because that's the right chocolate to mm-hmm. almond ratio mm-hmm. but like almonds in candy bars are like almonds in unless they're like sliced almonds on top of something you know yeah like it a, a good like almond poppy seed muffin yeah uh, we're talking about a different kind of nut that i do enjoy in candy bars and i enjoy even more when mixed in ice cream because also a peanut butter parfait sounds like it would hit the fucking spot right now this episode this is going to be another episode that makes us hungry, isn't it? I'm already hungry. This is just... All right. So... Who are we talking about? Uh, we are going to be talking about George Washington Carver. And I've been putting off this episode for a long time because I wanted to make sure that I did it right. And then I realized the only way to do it right is to just fucking do it. So... Usually, yeah. That's, that's how it goes. We're going to do some sources, which I didn't get the article names again because I'm a monster. Uh, so I was working off a history.com article... Uh, the tuskegee.edu website because they have a lot of information on george washington carver which we'll discuss why in a minute um an article from npr called george washington carver the black history monthiest of them all (laughs) some stuff from the national peanut (laughs) board.org and an article on smithsonian i guess smithsonian Uh, A Smithsonian Magazine article titled uh, George Washington Carver's True Legacy. This is going to be hard. Okay. So a lot of solid, solid sources. The uh, problem, again, is some articles had details that others didn't. Some had slightly different details between them. Uh, Some I remember hearing from a documentary and an episode of Schmanners, but I couldn't remember where they cited their sources from. So it's one of those. Oh, yeah. We've all had episodes like this. Anyone born before, like, 1950? Impossible to get accurate <laughs> records on them. Absolutely. Who even knows what year anyone was born? Or No, actually. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. By way of introduction, I will be the first person to admit that I thought George Washington Carver was just the peanut guy. Which, I mean, I can definitely say that is, like, the beginning and end of what I know about him. Yeah, and then I was thinking about it, and, like, there's got to be a beginning, a middle, and an end to the Peanut Man story. Like, you don't just pop out of the womb and be like, 300 uses for peanuts, and then that's it. <laughs> there's a buildup. But he wasn't just a guy who really liked peanuts. It, he did, but, like, not in a weird way. He appropriately liked peanuts. I was going to say, it was like, it was, it's the thing he is known for. It doesn't mean that, like, that was his entire life. Exactly. Um, he was incredibly important in the world of sustainable farming and actually helped farmers become more self-sufficient. So in the early 19th, I guess the early 20th century, he is pivotal in the farming practices that we have today. Go figure. <laughs> 
So just a heads up, uh, we will be talking about chattel slavery for a, a second um, and racism throughout because that's the reality of it. I'd say there's nothing I can do about it, but like there's stuff we can do about it right now, including talking about it. So, yay. You can't retroactively go back and yeah. make George Washington Carver's life less racist. You know, I, I don't have that Marty McFly technology yet. Our story begins in October of 1855. A German immigrant named Moses Carver purchased two young people named Mary and Giles for $700 to work on his farm in Diamond, Missouri. Uh, It was noted in several places that Carver was against slavery, but he needed help on the farm, which seems weird because why wouldn't you just hire people pay people living wage? Yes, I I don't know. I don't have that that information. Um, Aside from that, like, I think we'll find that Moses Carper was a pretty okay dude, but we'll get to it. So at some point... Relatively speaking. (laughs) Relatively, for 1855 standards... It's not like, uh, what, what are fuck, not Kathy Bates, the lady that Kathy Bates played that like murdered Lollery. Lollery. It's not like her where they're like, but she, she released- did a whole episode on her. I know. Uh, it's not like her where they were like, oh, she released some slaves. Like, yeah. Okay. So at some point, Mary and Giles had some children and in the vicinity of January to June, 1964, they had- 1964? I did write 1964 in my notes, but it is 1864. <laughs> It's like, whoa, we just shot forward in time really fast. Uh, T-shirt idea. Just uh, like 1955, and then the 19 is crossed out, and the 1855 is written under it. Yeah, that that would be on brand for both of us. In 1864, their son George was born. And about a week after that, George, one of his sisters, and his mother were kidnapped from the Carver uh, farm by a band of slave raiders that roamed Missouri during the Civil War. And the family was sold off individually in Kentucky. Christ. Yes, I had, well, I I think I had some inkling, but yeah, there were just bands of people that would kidnap enslaved people from their places of enslavement and sell them to other places. That's unbelievably tall, like terrible. Yeah. So Moses Carver hired a neighbor to go find them, but the neighbor only managed to find George um, with whom he bought back by trading one of Moses's best horses. Christ. Uh, George grew up knowing very little about his mother and his father who had actually died in an accident um, before George was born. I I heard that a piece of farm equipment fell on him, but it it seems irrelevant how his father died, other than it was very sad. Yeah, farming accident, not uh, unlikely, are uncommon in those days, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. So, thankfully, Moses Carver and his wife Susan raised George and his brother James as their own sons. Uh, They made sure that they were educated and learned to read and write. So that's kind of where Moses Carver is a little bit of a cool dude, but still slavery. Not good. Yeah. Uh, So it is worth noting that at this point, slavery had been abolished uh, in 1865, meaning George and his brother were free. And though the Carvers were apparently very kind people, the majority of the rest of the world was not which I'm sure is not news to any of you. Um, so this is less of a problem right now in the story, since the farm was very secluded, but it is not something that you should forget about because it will come up later. I, the summary of that paragraph is racism illegal, or not racism illegal, slavery illegal. Slavery. Racism still a thing. I, you could say the same is true of today. Correct. So like I said, the Carvers made sure the boys had as much of an education as you can give someone on a 
secluded farm. Mm-hmm. Um, but James wasn't much by way of like book learning. So he spent his time in the fields with Moses helping out. And George, who was deemed a sickly child, stayed inside. I always wondered like what that really like what sickly was always such a euphemism for. Like I it seems so general. He maybe had like asthma or something. Like maybe he just yeah. didn't like working outside. Maybe he had allergies. He's just like a skinny kid. So yeah. they thought he was sickly. Yeah. Um. So that didn't mean that he just sat around the farm like that awful boy from the secret garden. <laughs> I fucking hate that kid. I cannot explain to you how much I hate that kid. <laughs> like even as a child, I was like, what is his purpose in this story? <laughs> Dunk him in the ice bath. That's some childhood trauma that I need to work through. I just love how like quickly you came up with that grudge. Like it was immediate. It, like he was it's right there on the surface. <laughs> he's like right up there with the kid from the Babadook. Where it's like I don't see what sort of like purpose you're serving in this story, other than making me want to kick you. Other than serving as like the whole point of the story. Shut up. I'd love to see the Babadook without the kid. I think. <laughs> Someone could get me that cut of the film. Anyway, so George was described as a very bright, intelligent boy, and Susan taught him how to cook, mend, embroider, do laundry, and garden, as well as how to concoct simple herbal medicines. So he learned lady stuff. Ooh. Um, At a young age, Carver took an interest in plants and experimented with natural pesticides, fungicides, and soil conditioners. Uh, He became known as the plant doctor to local farmers due to his ability to discern how to improve the health of their gardens, fields, and orchards. So, a man after my own heart. Yeah, no, he's he's very, very smart. Like, smarter than I think I realized going into this. Uh, when he was 11, he decided he wanted to go to real school, which was a very noble pursuit, but it was also 1875, which meant there was no school for black children in nearby Diamond, Missouri. So instead, George said goodbye to his foster parents and his brother and headed off on foot to the nearest black school 10 miles away in what I think is pronounced No-Show, Missouri. How old is he again? You might have mentioned. 11. 11. Holy crap. Can you imagine, like, that's the age my nephew is. Can you, like, no, I can do shit. Go ahead, go walk 10 miles. No. I thought the mile to the city pool was too much. (laughs) Um, So when he reached town, he found the school closed for the night. He slept in a nearby barn. And by his own account, the next morning he met a black woman named Mariah Watkins from whom he wished to rent a room. Uh, When he identified himself as Carver's George, as he had done his whole life, she replied that from now on his name was George Carver. Hmm. Uh, Mariah and her husband Andrew were a couple with no children of their own, and they took George in uh, in exchange for help with household chores. Mariah was a midwife and a nurse and taught George her broad knowledge of medicinal herbs and also her devout Christian faith. Uh, Something she once said to George stuck with him for the rest of his life to the point where he brought it up later when he was, you know, old and famous enough to give interviews. Um, So she said, you must learn all you can, then go back out into the world and give your learning back to the people. I like that. I'm going to tear up during this episode. This is what I get for recording right after therapy. (laughs) So I think I warned you about this early this week. (laughs) I would say you've been geared up for this all week. I've had a day, man. At age 13, George wanted to attend a school in Fort Scott, Kansas, and moved in with another family there. But after witnessing a public lynching of a black man, he left the city, understandably. Yeah. Uh, Which, uh, that's insane. Like, when I was 13, all I was capable of of was, like, fucking around at the mall and barely doing my homework. And he is, like, making decisions and moving to new towns and finding lodging. It's crazy. 
so for the next decade or so, Carver moved from one mis- Midwestern town to another and put himself through school and survived off of the domestic skills he learned from his foster mothers. Mm. Um, he graduated from Minneapolis High School in Minneapolis, <gasps> Kansas. Oh. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it when I wrote it that I was going to have to get the Kansas in there really fast. I, I was going to say, like, I had no idea he had a connection to Minnesota. I didn't know. No, Kansas. Um, in 1880, he applied to Highland College in Kansas, and he was initially accepted at the all-white college, but was later rejected when the administration learned that he was black. I was going to say, did they, like, let him in on not understanding, and then uh, when they found out? Uh... Nope, they found out. <sighs> it, it gets better. In the late 1880s, Carver bef- uh, befriended the Millhollands, a white couple in Winterset, Iowa, who encouraged him to uh, continue pursuing a higher education. And despite the setback with, you know, the whole Highland College thing. Racism thing. Yep. Um, and having some trouble securing funding, he enrolled in Simpson College, a Methodist school that admitted all qualified applicants. So that that's cool. Um, actually, as far as, like, organized religion go, Methodists, pretty chill. Yeah. Um, So this didn't mean that he was done facing racism in education, unfortunately. Uh, For a long time, he had to eat lunch and sleep separately from the white students. And I remember hearing somewhere that a white lady friend of his helped kind of set this right by visiting him and demanding that she be sat with him and served at all the same places that he was. So she would eat with him at like the black lunch counter and, uh, you know, use the black facilities uh-huh. when she was out. Um, and I guess her doing that made it so the school was like, yeah, you can eat with the white kids. They're like, oh, 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 God, we can't have this white girl eating at these places. Exactly. So suffice it to say that being a good student did not exclude him from the rampant bullshit of segregation. Um, So Carver initially studied art and piano in hopes of earning a teaching degree. He wanted to be an artist. Aw. But one of his professors named Etta Budd, which is a great name. Uh, she was skeptical of a black man being able to make a living as an artist, which sad, but probably true. Yeah. So after learning of his interest in plants and flowers, Bud encouraged Carver to apply at the Iowa State Agricultural School, now just Iowa State University, uh, where her father taught botany. Go Hawkeyes. <laughs> right? I think so, yeah. Um, so the Iowa State Agricultural College was the country's first land-grant university. Oh, uh, God, no, they're the Cyclones. Oh, God. The Hawkeyes is the other one. It was part of a group of schools with a mission to teach not just the liberal arts, but also the applied sciences, including agriculture. So their students could study soil, entomology, agricultural chemistry, practical agriculture, landscape gardening, rural architecture, and also algebra, bookkeeping, geography, psychology. So th- the basics. Yeah. Um, in 1894, Carver became the first African-American to earn a Bachelor of Science degree. Period. Like, ever? Ever. Goddamn. Uh, impressed by Carver's research on the fungal infection of soybean plants, his professors asked him to stay on for graduate studies. You know, when someone really impresses you with their knowledge of soybean fungus? <laughs> So Carver worked with a mycologist, which is a fungal scientist, which I think they should be called fungologists, but (laughs) what do I know? I think they should be called fun guys. (gasps) Yes, I am (laughs) George Washington Carver. Dr. George Washington Carver. Fun guy. And then they laugh and laugh and laugh. (laughs) So he worked with a mycologist named L.H. Pamel at the Iowa State Experimental Station, which isn't, as it sounds, a 70s nightclub. (laughs) 
Uh, but he worked to hone his skills in identifying and treating uh, plant diseases. Wouldn't you go party at the Iowa State Experimental Station? Yes. Or, like, listen to them on vinyl, I guess, is the other. <laughs> That's a jazz trio, now that I think about it. Uh, anyway, so in 1896, Carver earned his Master of Agriculture degree and immediately received several offers. Um, and it should yeah. be noted he is the first black man to receive a master's degree. I assume so. Yep. Um, so the most attractive offer came from Booker T. Washington. Hey, that's who, a name I know. Whose last name George would later add to his own. Um, and this was at the Tuskegee uh, Institute, now Tuskegee University in Alabama. And I had to learn how to pronounce Tuskegee for this episode. Because my brain was like, it's Tuskegee. It's not. It is not, no. Um, so Washington convinced the university's trustees to establish an agricultural school, which could only be run by Carver if Tuskegee was to keep its all-black faculty. So literally, Booker T. Washington was like, we need an agricultural school. And the board was like, well, who's going to run it? It's white guys. And Booker T. Washington was like, there is one black man. <laughs> Uh, so as the first black man in the U.S. to receive graduate training in modern agricultural methods, Carver was the logical and literally only choice to run it. Yeah. So he accepted, uh, writing later that, quote, it has always been one of the great ideal of my life to be of the greatest good to the greatest number of, quote, my people possible. And to this end, I have been preparing myself these many years, feeling as I do that this line of education is the key to unlock the golden door of freedom to our people. Oh. I know. <laughs> But as Carver headed to Alabama, he realized that things weren't going to be easy. Well, he is going to Alabama. Yes. In a 1941 radio interview, he recalled, quote, My train left the golden wheat fields and the tall green corn of Iowa for the acres of cotton. Nothing but cotton. The scraggly cotton grew close up to the cabin doors. A few lonesome collards, the only sign of vegetables, stunted cattle, bony mules, fields and hillsides cracked and scarred with gullies and deep ruts. Not much evidence of scientific farming anywhere. Everything looked hungry. The land, the cotton, the cattle, and the people. Because the South sucked back then. Yeah, it was like, not that like you can give the Midwest too much credit for being super progressive or anything, but... Uh, they had woof. corn. They did have corn. Yeah. There was also a lot going on in the world of farming in the South, and a lot of it was fueled by, as you guessed, racism. Oh, surprise, surprise. In turn of the century, Alabama, black farmers were barely scraping by thanks to very unevenly enforced laws that disproportionately harmed black communities. Gasp. I know. I never would have thought. There's someone on Instagram, I think her username is like Black Forager or something, but she did a really, really interesting video about um, how foraging was also unevenly enforced, like uh, laws against foraging were very unevenly enforced against Black people in the turn of the century and how like reclaiming it now is a big deal. It's it's great. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it actually like kind of led me to where I was on this research. Um so yeah, the disproportionate laws. Um, after the Civil War, Southern landowners, quote, allowed poor farmers, mostly black, to work their land in exchange for a fee or a cut of the crop. Sharecropping. 
which I, you might have heard before. Yes. The system was hit or miss, meaning one bad year could push a farmer into debt, and it was also highly unfair. And one historian called it, quote, a system of near slavery without legal sanctions. Basically, yeah. Uh, near Tuskegee, one tenant farmer was arrested for chopping wood too close to the property line. While the farmer was in jail, his white neighbors put his farm up for sale. Mm-hmm. So when tenants couldn't control their land and could be evicted at any time or kicked off their land land for trumped up charges, they had little incentive incentive to improve the land or the soil. Yeah, because why would you're you? just trying to scrape by? Yeah, yeah, it's like doing reno work for a rental. Like you're not going to. Mm-hmm. Um, so this means it was a little difficult for Carver to you know get to work helping these communities with his ideas of improving the soil. That was his whole thing. That's what he knew the most about was soil improvement. But he was headed to a place where people didn't really have an interest in improving the soil because they didn't, I mean, they own their land, but they didn't own their land. Yeah. And when like, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to actually hold on to that land, I think you're less yeah apt to be a steward of it because you're just, you got to get everything out of it while you can. Yeah. Essentially. So that left him with a pretty big problem. And he also struggled with the demands of the faculty position that he held. He wanted to devote his time to researching agricultural ways to help out poor Southern farmers, but he was also expected to manage the school's two farms, to teach, to ensure the students' toilets and sanitary facilities work properly, and sit on multiple committees and councils. Yeah, I mean, teaching is a full-time job. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Yes. (laughs) And then so. Yeah. And this was on top of the fact that many faculty members resented Carver for his high salary and demand to have two dormitory rooms, one for him and one for his plants. <laughs> uh, I love it. <laughs> That's big mood. Okay. Uh, Carver and Booker T. Washington also had kind of a complicated relationship and would butt heads very often, in part because Carver wanted very little to do with teaching, though his students loved him. Um, Carver would eventually get his way when Washington passed away in 1915 and was succeeded by a man named Robert Rusa Martin. Uh, who relieved Carver of his teaching duties except for summer school. But yeah, this isn't to say that Carver wasn't devastated by the death of Booker T. Washington, seeing as they were still very close friends, despite their differences. Yeah. So by this time, Carver already had great success in the lab and in the community. He had started teaching poor farmers that they could feed hogs acorns instead of commercial feed and enrich croplands with swamp muck instead of fertilizers. Uh, To further help farmers, he invented the Jessup Wagon, which was a kind of a mobile horse-drawn classroom and lab that he used to demonstrate soil chemistry across the countryside for people who might lack the ability to travel and learn. That's very cool. Yeah, it's kind of like those libraries on wheels. Mm -hmm. Bookmobiles. Bookmobiles. That's what I wanted. Um, He also came up with the idea to rotate crops to help the soil quality, which, spoiler alert, the whole episode kind of hinges on that concept. I was going to say that is not to get too ahead of you, but like that is what my dad does on their farm. I yeah. mean, if you plant soybeans in a field one year, you plant corn in it the next. Exactly. Something with the, I don't know exactly what the science behind we'll it is. We'll get into it a little bit. Yeah. Cotton, while it was a huge source of income, did nothing to help the soil. As a matter of fact, it kind of fucks up the soil in a really big way by eroding it with the shallow roots and sapping various nutrients from the soil the longer that it's planted there. Meaning that planting cotton every year will eventually result in diminishing returns and cause very deep trenches in the soil from erosion. 
some like trenches caused by overplanting of cotton were described as being deep enough for a grown man to stand in. Good lord. Yeah. So through his work on soil chemistry, Carver learned that by growing nitrogen-fixing plants like peanuts, soybeans, and sweet potatoes, the soil could be restored, allowing yield to increase dramatically when the land was reverted back to cotton a few years later. So that's where the whole peanut thing comes in. Peanuts could be grown in the same fields as cotton because their production times, like times of the year, were different. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. And while some plants needed to be fertilized with nitrogen, peanuts can produce their own nitrogen thanks to a symbiotic relationship with bacteria that live on the roots. So the bacteria... So the cotton takes the nitrogen out of the soil. The peanuts put it back in. The peanuts put it back in, yeah. Uh, uh, And also, peanuts are a very nutritionally sound food source on top of that. Mm -hmm. So they're high in protein, and they're more nutritious than the, quote, 3M meals that most farmers subsisted on, which was meat, molasses, and meal. Oof, yeah. Yeah. Though if I remember correctly, in order to be a complete protein containing all the essential amino acids, uh, peanuts need to be paired with some sort of grain, maybe wheat. Oh, interesting. So Carver encouraged farmers to grow peanuts, but then he had to encourage them to do something with those peanuts. Right. Were they not like big sellers on the market or? No, I think he got boiled peanuts down in Georgia, but they weren't, they weren't a huge deal. Yeah. So from 1915 People to- weren't like mass buying. Oh, no. Mass producing peanuts for human consumption. No. Okay. They were like a snack food. So from 1915 to 1923, Carver concentrated on researching and experimenting with new uses for peanuts, sweet potatoes, soybeans, pecans, and other crops. Now, if you think about it, the things I just listed are huge agricultural products in the South now. Yeah, I was going to say all of those just scream South. Yeah, like pecans, especially. Pecans, especially, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, you said pecans, I said pecans, so. Pecans. Yep, uh, so he began experimenting with new uses for these, as well as having his assistants research and compile existing uses. And thus we received his famous 300 uses for peanuts. I love how, like, this is the thing he's known for. And yet, like, that was really just... It was a drop in the bucket. Almost a side effect of his real contribution. Carver's peanut work led him to create peanut bread, peanut cookies, peanut sausage, peanut ice cream, and even peanut coffee. He patented a peanut butter-based face cream and created peanut-based shampoos, dyes, and paints. And the frightening-sounding peanut nitroglycerin. (laughs) Oh, dear. However, the 300 number might be inaccurate in terms of what he invented. Of the 300 uses for the peanut, um, which the Carver Museum at Tuskegee gives 287 as the number, but we're going to round it. Round up, yeah. Um, So Carver detailed many that weren't original, such as the recipe for salted peanuts. Others he may have gotten from contemporary cookbooks or magazines. And at the beginning of his bulletin, How to Grow the Peanut and 105 ways of preparing it for human consumption, Carver did acknowledge assistance from more than 20 different sources, including Good Housekeeping, The Montgomery Advisor, Wallace's Farmer, and a number of other magazines. Uh, so it's probably more accurate to say like he compiled he a compiled list of it, 300. Yeah. yeah. Which is still cool. Oh yeah. But the thing was, he wasn't trying to claim credit for all of these uses. He just wanted to get the information out there so that people right. would have a use for the peanuts um, that could, you know, save their cotton production. 
And then he became known as the peanut man. Yep. But he did not invent peanut butter. I know really? some, I know some of you think he did, but he didn't. <laughs> I think it's just naturally assumed that the guy came up with so many different ways to do things with peanuts that like peanut butter obviously had to be that thing. I think the amazing thing is that he came up with that many uses for peanuts and not one of them was peanut butter. <laughs> So the earliest reference to peanut butter can be traced back to the ancient Incas and the Aztecs. Oh, so this is a thing. Yeah, they ground roasted peanuts into a paste. However, modern peanut butter, its process of production, and the equipment used to make it can be credited to at least three different inventors. In 1884, Marcellus Gilmore Edson of Canada patented peanut paste, the finished product for milling roasted peanuts between two heated surfaces. In 1895, Dr. and I'm sorry, John Harvey Kellogg. Ah, uh, this fucker. The creator of Kellogg cereal and the infamous colon obsessed weirdo. Uh, he patented a process for creating peanut butter from raw peanuts. He marketed it as a nutritious protein substitute for people who could hardly chew on solid food. Although he did advocate for a mostly like paste and liquid-based diet because it made your bowels work better. I don't want to get into Kellogg again. The man is a pervert. He, had, he was the one who like you had to chew your food a certain amount of time. Until it just basically like slid yeah. down your throat. He's also the one that did... Yo- it was good for digestion, apparently, or what yeah. he thought was, yeah. This is the same guy that did yogurt enemas on Taft. Like, it's all yeah. bad. I think Serial Origins is the name of the episode that I did that was very focused on Kellogg. Yeah, go listen to that one. Uh, He's a monster. Anyway, continue. In 1903, Dr. Ambrose Straub of St. Louis, Missouri patented a peanut butter making machine. So that's where peanut butter came from. And in case you were wondering, a peanut butter sandwich is a complete protein when you make it with whole grain bread. Oh, yeah. Interesting. The jelly, as far as I know, is just a way to keep it from being super dry. (laughs) But personally, I'm partial to peanut butter and cheese sandwiches. You're a monster. Try it! Peanut butter and sharp cheddar. I think my grandma actually used to make those. I I would never eat it, but she would make them. Very good. One of my favorite things is a quesadilla made with um, peanut butter, cheese, and apple slices. Oh, God, that sounds so good. Right? Actually, yeah. And you can do the, like, TikTok hack where you, like, cut a little sliver in the thing and, like, fold it and then cook it. I think the, uh, I think what makes me not like the idea of peanut butter and cheese sandwiches is because I'm picturing, like, the cheapest white bread. Ooh, no. The, like, American slice of cheese, like, jiffy peanut butter. Like, I I can see how you can make that combination work. Yeah, you gotta do, like, a, a slightly nicer sourdough doesn't work. So you need, like, a soft potato bread. And then Jiffy Peanut Butter, because, like, I've tried natural... I mean, that's the brand I buy. Yeah, I've tried natural peanut butter, and I hate it, because it's not soft. It's the oils that they add to it that make it soft, but I don't give a shit. Um, so, chunky, if you want to do that, it adds a nice crunch. And then, like, a nice sharp cheddar. Not, like, cheese board nice cheddar, but, like, your standard... Like a good deli slice of sharp cheddar cheese. Yeah, yeah. We use Tillamook in this house, but... Yeah. So, yeah, peanut butter and cheese. It's delicious. I haven't tried it warm. I feel like toasting the bread would kind of ruin the effect, but uh, peanut butter, cheese, and apple quesadillas are very good. I'm really craving... Now I'm craving the peanut butter you can get at Hell's Kitchen. Oh my god, why would you bring that up? (laughs) You can order it online. I know. I just... There's something about mail ordering peanut butter that I can't (laughs) reconcile. $14 $14 peanut butter from halfway across the country. 
You can't bring yourself to do it? No, I can't. so good, I'm still trying to use up the fucking natural Trader Joe's peanut butter I bought because I was trying to be, like, healthy when I should have just bought (laughs) peanut butter spread that I will actually eat. (laughs) But yeah, George Washington Garver didn't invent peanut butter. So anyway, his work, uh, especially his speaking uh, to a national conference of the Peanut Growers Association in 1920 and his testimony before Congress in 1921 to support a passage of a tariff on uh, imported peanuts, which we'll get to in a second. Um, this all brought him wide publicity and increasing renown. So he got famous because of, well, he got, It was the peanut thing that got him famous. It was the yeah. peanut thing that got him famous, but technically it was the crop rotation thing. It's, you know. Yeah. The peanuts were a symptom of the crop rotation. Is they like, peanuts were just like, okay, like, I gotta, because he needs to, like, give people a good reason to, like, actually do the crop rotations like no this isn't a useless crop they've got all these things you can do with this exactly crop. and it does good stuff for the soil like you gotta you gotta kind of sell it <laughs> but all of this stuff basically made him the denzel of his time he was one of the most well-known african-americans of the time period in 1921 so we're gonna loop back to that congress thing in 1921 he went to dc on the Peanut Association's behalf to lobby for a tariff on foreign peanuts. He was supposed to give a brief talk in which he showed off some alternative peanut food products, some of which he ate while he addressed the lawmakers. Um, One congressman did ask Carver if he would like some watermelon to go with his food. Of course. But Carver didn't take any shit and told the congressman that watermelon was fine, but it was a dessert food. He's the best. So he charmed the members of Congress so much that they kept extending his allotted speaking time. (laughs) And when he was done with his presentation, onlookers broke out into applause and the tariff was eventually passed. So it kept foreign peanuts from making their way into America when we could produce all the peanuts we needed and help farmers in the south that's really sweet i love that just i could listen to this man talk about peanuts for hours it reminds me a lot of when mr rogers testified uh on behalf of pbs it's the same vibe yep so up until the year of his death he released bulletins for the public 44 of them between 1898 and 1943 and this include bulletins being like pamphlets yeah. Um, so this included the infamous How to Grow the Peanut and 105 Ways of Preparing It for Human Consumption. But some of the bulletins reported on research findings. Um, others were more practical in nature and included cultiva- cultivation tips for farmers, science for teachers, and recipes for housewives. Um, some of the absolute banger titles include Number 11, 1908, Experiment Station, The Relation of Weather and Soil Conditions to the Fruit Industry of Southeastern Alabama. What a page turner. Um, number 12, 1907, experimenta- exp- I say experimentation station, but it's experiment station. Um, saving the wild plum crop. Number 13, 1908, how to cook cow peas. Number 27, 1915, when, what, and how to can and preserve fruits and vegetables in the home. I mean, these all sound like very useful. Yeah. Number 32, 1916, three delicious meals every day for the farmer. <laughs> Number 33, 1917, 12 ways to meet the new economic conditions here in the South. Number 39, 1927, how to make and save money on the farm. Emily, you know what this makes me want to do? Eh. Play Stardew Valley. <laughs> right? Um, number 40, my personal favorite, 1935, Experiment Station, The Raising of Hogs. <laughs> uh, in the mid-1930s, when the polio virus was all the rage in America... <laughs> 
COVID-19 before it was cool. Yep. Uh, Carver became convinced that peanuts were the answer. He offered a treatment of peanut oil massages that reported positive results, though no scientific evidence exists that the treatments worked because of the peanuts. Was it maybe because of the massages? Yeah, it was uh, attributed to the massage treatment and attentive care rather than the peanut oil. And then, sadly, as most people's do, Carver's life ended. Um, Upon returning home one day, Carver took a bad fall down a flight of stairs. He was found unconscious by a maid who took him to the hospital, where he died on January 5th, 1943, at the age of 79, from complications resulting from the fall. And prepare your tissues, everybody. Um, He was buried next to Booker T. Washington at the Tuskegee University. Oh. Due to his frugality, Carver's life savings totaled $60,000, I believe, in 1943 money, all of which he donated in his last years and at his death to the Carver Museum and to the George Washington Carver Foundation. On his grave is written, God damn it. (laughs) On his grave is written, quote, he could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, Soon after, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed legislation for Carver to receive his own monument, an honor previously only granted to presidents. Uh, Presidents George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So only two presidents and George Washington Carver. Damn. Uh, The George Washington Carver National Monument now stands in Diamond, Missouri, where, if you remember, he was born. Yeah, he was born. Uh, Carver was also uh, posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. And he remains one of the only, or the only, person to be honored by both the NAACP and the Daughters of the Confederacy. Interesting combination. So now that I'm tearing up, let's check out a list of his uses for the peanuts, courtesy of the Tuskegee Institute website. And maybe we'll even take a peep at some of the sweet potato uses. Are you going to read all 287? No, I'm not. I'm just going to scroll and find some of the real bangers. Give us some highlights, yeah. I actually haven't read this list all the way through. Oh, excellent. I love improv. Peanut butter is on the list, but he did not invent it. Uh, Peanut milk, breakfast food number two, breakfast food number three, (laughs) breakfast food number four, peanut surprise, bisque powder, peanut meal, meat substitutes, chocolate-coated peanuts, Peanut cake, number one and number two. Uh, mock oysters. Peanut meatloaf. Interesting. <laughs> peanut meatloaf. Uh, mock meat. I mean, it's <laughs> basically just like a veggie-based, plant-based meat substitute, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, milks. Ahead of his time. Parentheses, 32. Peanut vinegar. Peanut relish. Peanut tutti fruity bars. Sweet pickle. <laughs> golden nuts. <laughs> Uh, hen food, laundry soap, peanut orange punch number one, peanut beverage flakes. <laughs> I'm sure these are accompanied by like recipes and explanations. But Evaporated boy, those peanut names. beverage, <laughs> rubbing oil, goiter treatment, laxatives, hand lotion, face cream, shaving cream, glycerin, antiseptic soap, peanut oil shampoo, leather dye, special peanut dye. <laughs> insecticide glue gasoline diesel fuel printers ink writing ink rubber sizing for walls which i'm not entirely sure what that means nitroglycerin soil conditioner which is very nitrogen rich um i gotta find a real good one to go out on lubricating oil substitute asparagus <laughs> <laughs> oh no this one's good pickle comma plain i would love to know more about how you can uh, use 
peanuts to make pickles. Yeah, they don't really give the information on that. I'm sure if you Googled each of these things individually, someone on the internet would tell you. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's something exists. Maybe I'll post uh, in the slideshow. Um, I will post uh, a very good peanut cookie recipe. How that? Perfect. Um, well, let's let's take a look at sweet potatoes to close out. Because he also did advocate for soybeans, sweet potatoes, pecans, you know, but I guess peanuts were the best. Peanuts are pretty good. Um, the sweet potato list is far, far shorter because you got flour, starch, sugar, molasses, mock coconut, um, dry paste. Delicious. Granulated potatoes, spiced vinegar, hog feed, library paste, alcohol, synthetic silk, and uh, paper. Oh. Oh, after dinner mints, one, two, and three. I would love a sweet potato after dinner mint. Breakfast food number five. <laughs> I think breakfast food number whatever is my favorite. <laughs> Synthetic ginger and candy, comma, 14 varieties. <laughs> so yeah, that is, that's George Washington Carver. Not just a peanut man. What a great man. He really was. I don't think I've ever teared up during an episode of Afternoonified. That's sweet. Um, if you have any uses for peanuts, <laughs> we are on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoonified. Um, you can find us at getafternoonified.com where you can check out past episodes. You can donate. You can buy merch. Uh, the proceeds from merch sales are still going to Black Lives Matter. You can email us at afternoonifiedpod? Correct. At, at gmail.com. Gmail. <laughs> And remember to... I love how that's like the one thing of this whole spiel that you just never quite get. Well, gotta think, I think a little bit. we had a different email when the show started. And then... This is true. And then there was that incident where I kept trying to log in to Get Afternoonified, but I don't think we own Get Afternoonified. No. So I had to think of something else and it doesn't get used very often. But um, remember to subscribe rate review i always say those i think those are like youtube things that you do it's just subscribe review that's it that's all you can really do you can um, rate on apple Podcasts. you gotta you give it a rating and then you review oh uh, yeah i guess that's true anyway do those things and uh do all of them we'll see you next time goodbye, goodbye. we love you love the bachelor franchise ah the romance the adventure the drama but do you also kind of hate the bachelor franchise oh yeah the sexism the racism the intense heteronormativity of it all here at date card we're just two obsessed queerdos who love to dissect talk shit and get blocked by problematic contestants yeah we're here for the good the bad and the chad of it all you can find us on soblo media itunes and spotify please Please accept accept this rose. rose For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to sobelowmedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.